0: good time to start decorating. Um, all right, it is, it is Family Sunday, uh, which means majority of our children will stay in the service. Uh, but if you have children kindergarten and under, is at this time uh, they can line up over here and uh, Miss Peggy and the rest of our junior church workers will begin taking them downstairs. If you are not going downstairs to Junior Church, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We're making our way through Malachi. We're in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 this morning. Um, the title is A Disconnected Faith. So I want to I start off with just what do I mean when I say a disconnected faith? So uh, first, let me, let me just say it this way. The Christian life is a life of faith. Uh, Paul in Galatians chapter two, verse 20 said, "'The life I now live in the flesh, "'I live by faith in the Son of God.'" So as Christians, we've been saved by God that we would live by faith. And it's when we live by faith that we, we are salt and light in this world. Living by faith is to trust in the very promises of God. This means that we work, we play, we do marriage, we do parenting, All of that is to be done by faith in Jesus Christ. When we live by faith, we're saying that we need God's grace, his wisdom, his strength in order to love others and to live the obedient life that God has called us to live. So if that's the way we're supposed to live, and that's what Paul means when he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So what does it mean to have a disconnected faith? Well, it's when we think that there are certain parts of our lives that we don't need to have faith in God. We think there are certain areas in our life that we are smart enough or strong enough to handle without God's grace. Now, this has been a problem that has plagued the church ever since the very beginning. As Christians, we go to church on Sunday, we pray before meals, we read our Bibles in the morning, but then the way we work, the movies we watch, the books we read, the language we use if not careful, can all but deny our faith in Jesus Christ. Rather than a faith that permeates every single aspect of our life, it's compartmentalized. It's disconnected from other areas. In essence, in those areas, we are trusting in our strength and our strategy to accomplish our purposes rather than in God's wisdom and grace. And so in our text today we're going to see the danger of a disconnected faith. We're in the book of Malachi. Last week, we saw that the leaders have been faithless to God. They have failed to live in obedience to God's word. They have failed to instruct God's people in the word. And so now we will see, when we have a faithless leadership, it will produce a faithless people. And to highlight how faithless the people have become, Malachi is going to address marriage and divorce. So here's the main point this morning. We guard our marriage as an act of worship to God and love for our spouse. That's what I want us to see. We guard our marriage as an act of worship to God and love for our spouse. And so what I want to do, I want to encourage you, let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to read our passage. We stand here when we read God's Word as a means of reminding ourselves that this Word, all 66 books contained in the Bible, comes to us inspired by God for the purpose of building us up and encouraging us and equipping us to live the life God has called us to. Chapter 2, verse 10 of Malachi. Have we not all one Father, Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. God, it is, it is a hard passage. It is a difficult passage. And so, Lord, I do pray for your grace just to abound in this moment. I pray that your spirit would work within each of our hearts and each of our minds. And, God, that you would help us to truly understand your wisdom and the point in which you have given us this text. Lord, protect our hearts and minds that we would not twist this scripture. We would not listen to the lies of Satan at this point. But that, God, we would hear what you say regarding marriage, what you say regarding divorce, how we are to love one another, and how our relationships, particularly our marriages, reflect the relationship we have with you. And Lord, ultimately they point to relationship between your son Jesus Christ and the love that he has for the church. So God, as we, as we dig into this passage, as we seek understanding... God, help us to understand that we are to guard our marriages because they are precious. Because they are meant to honor you and to worship you. And we're meant to honor our spouses in our marriage. So God, bless our time now. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're gonna start off. We start off with a general truth that Malachi gives us. And we see that love is the defining mark of the Christian community. If you look at verse 10, it begins with two questions, and he says, have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Now Malachi is not speaking of God as the creator of all things at this moment, but rather he's specifically talking about God the Father as the one who has created and saved the nation of Israel. In fact, let me read Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 real quick. It says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is what Malachi is referring to. Is not this our God? Is not this our Father, the one who has made us, saved us to be a holy people? And so Malachi's point is that Israel belongs to God. And because they belong to God, their lives are to honor God. But rather than honor God, what we see all throughout this passage and all through the book of Malachi is that they are faithless to one another and they are faithless to God. Now, the word faithless is used five times in this passage, so Malachi does not want us to miss. The dominant characteristic of the people of God is that they're faithless. And the word faithless means treacherous. So they treat each other in a treacherous way, in a way that does not honor and does not love one another. And notice the result of their faithlessness. It profanes, or we've looked at this word in the last couple of weeks, meaning it pollutes or dishonors the covenant of their fathers. And when we're talking about the covenant of the fathers, we're talking about the relationship with God, the fact that Israel belongs to God. So to be faithless, To one another is to be faithless to God. And what Malachi wants us to see is that this is what is characterizing God's people. In essence, they're saying that my relationship with God has no bearing and has no impact on how I treat you. I can treat you and I can use you in whatever way benefits me most. But what we need to know is that all throughout Scripture, the way we treat one another is no small matter to God. In fact, all throughout the Old and New Testament, we see the dominant um, or, or the defining mark of God's people is that we love one another. And, and, those, and the writer who wrote about that more than anyone else was the Apostle John. And if you go to the book of First John, you would see that he uses the word love 46 times to characterize our love to God and to characterize our love for one another. So let me just read a couple passages from 1 John that speaks about our love for one another. 1 John three fourteen, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So the way we know we're saved, gone from spiritual death to spiritual life, is because we love one another. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So those who believe in Jesus Christ love one another. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The defining mark of a believer, of a Christian, of the church is that we love one another. We are saved by God The God of love, by his love, so that we would then show his love to others. In fact, the Christian love is so radical that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5.44, says, We don't just love those who love us, but who do we love? We love our enemies. Listen, our faith in God is revealed by our love for one another. We are kind we are gentle and we are patient with others because God is kind and gentle and patient with us. We are honest and trustworthy with one another because God is honest and trustworthy with us. And when we fail to love others, we deny God's grace and his work in our life. And that's what's happening here in Israel. Now, so, so what, what Malachi does, he starts with this general diagnosis of the problem. Israel is faithless. And now he says, I, I want to prove to you, I want to show you exactly how Israel is faithless. So I'm sure there are many examples that he could choose from, but he chooses two examples, and he's going to speak about marriage and divorce. Now, before we dig in, um, it's only fair to say that his word is You might consider it quite hard this morning, depending where you're at in your relationship with marriage or if you've had a divorce. God's word might feel like a hammer this morning, and it might feel like it comes and and it crushes. And there are times that's exactly what God's word does. It it exposes the sin in our heart. It crushes it. It leaves, leaves us open to God that we would repent And that same power that God's word crushes our heart with is also the very same power that he uses to form our heart and to comfort us so that we would love him and that it would be transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you as we look at this topic, um, you're going to have questions and we can't handle or we can't address all those questions. I'll try to hit a few of them. As we go through, but know this, at least two things, God is correcting his people because he loves them. This entire book is one out of love the Father has for his son, Israel. That's so how we're to understand this book, and so as it was directed to love to them, it's, it's directed to love for us, that, we would, that our sin would be exposed so that we'd repent and we'd experience the life that God has called us to. And secondly, we need to remember that God's commands are for our good. He's given us his word that we would know him, that we would love him, that we would live in a way that would honor him, and that we would flourish under. And so with that, we'll jump into our text. I ran these by my wife. Well, they didn't pass. (laughs) But I... I said, I, I don't know how to do these points any differently. So, so here we go. They're very straightforward. Marrying an unbeliever profanes our covenant with God. Verses 11 and 12, that's where we see that. Notice how verse 11 begins. God's people have been faithless, and they committed an abomination. So might say, well, well, what have they done? What is this abomination? It says, they profaned God's sanctuary. This could refer to the temple, but I think it makes better sense to understand it as applying to God's people. Like in Psalm 114 verse 2, Judah is called the sanctuary of God. So God dwells with his people. And because they've married unbelievers now, they've profaned the sanctuary, the very place in which God dwells. And so you say, how have they done this? They married the daughter of a foreign god. So they've married someone outside the community of Israel who worships another God. So it begs the question, like, why is this wrong? It's not because Israel is racist. In fact, we actually see throughout the Old Testament um, people being pulled in from other nations into the people of God, in fact, actually used to bring about the very line of Jesus. So what is, what is the problem with marrying those outside the nation of Israel who worship a foreign god. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, we read the answer to this. God says, "You shall not intermarry with the meaning, intermarry with the nations around you, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons." And here's the reason, verse 4, "for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So what's the reason? It's spiritual. It's nothing to do necessarily with race. It's a spiritual reason. If they married women who worship foreign gods, they'll be tempted to begin worshiping foreign gods. We see this happen all throughout the history of Israel that they intermarry, they disobey God. And every time they do this, they encounter problems. Probably Solomon is one of the prime examples of this. In fact, this is what we read on, on an account of Solomon's life. 1 Kings 11 verse 4. Now, this is what we know to be the wisest man in, in the Old Testament and in the entire world apart from Jesus Christ. So here's the smartest guy who ever lived, and he intermarried with women of different belief systems. And so this is what we're told. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. So what's the problem? If we marry those who have different belief systems than we are, we're tempted to adopt those belief systems. Now think about this. If we are saved by God, so that our entire lives would testify of our love for God, then why would we consider marrying someone who does not love God? I mean, there is no earthly relationship that's more important or affects us more deeply than who we marry. Our marriage impacts our values, our priorities, our desires, our happiness, how we spend our money, where we live, what we do, where we work, our very spirituality It affects everything about us. Listen listen to what Paul says about marriage. So Paul's going to, in Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to give the grand purpose of marriage. He says in chapter 5, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is profound. When you have the word mystery, when Paul uses that, he uses it to say, what was happened in the Old Testament was a mystery, but now in the New Testament, by the coming of Jesus, it's revealed, okay? So when we read about a husband and wife becoming one flesh in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, there's a mystery that's there, but once we come into the New Testament, because of the gospel, that mystery is made known. That's how we uses the word mystery every single time. So what's this mystery that's now made known? He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So when a husband and a wife leave their parents, and they come together, and they are joined as one, ultimately that's pointing to the love that Christ has for the church And that ultimately he is the head of that household, that he will shepherd his wife, he will cleanse her with the washing of the word, which is what we read in Ephesians 5. And the wife, the church, will submit to that relationship, just as the wife is submit to her husband as Christ is the head of the church. So the way that we do marriage within the church, the way that we think about it, the way we understand our roles, all points to something much greater than you and I. That's why your marriage is not ultimately about you. It ultimately points to the very glory of God and how he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross that he would have a bride, that he would shepherd and save. And that's what our marriages point to. So if that's the case, how will that happen? If our spouse does not love Jesus, how do we expect our unbelieving spouse to pray for us and encourage us in our walk with God when they don't love God? How is your husband going to shepherd you and lead you in godliness if he does not love God? How will your wife support and encourage you to be like Christ if she does not love Jesus? Do you see the disconnect in faith? Do you see what's happened here? You know, so many times... I've asked someone who's just entered into a dating relationship. Like, what's one of the first questions? Are they a believer? And many, many times they say, I don't know. Now just think about it. I don't know? What other question is more important when determining the criteria of the person you are going to spend the most intimate parts of your life with? To date and marry an unbeliever is to sideline your faith on behalf of lust. You're profaning your relationship with God. You are telling God, you are not important for my marriage. I do not need you. My marriage is off limits to faith. You say, well, that's not what I'm saying. Well, that's what our actions are implying. When we say that I can approach marriage apart, from faith in God. And so what's the consequence of disconnected faith? What's the consequence of thinking our faith is only applicable for certain aspects of our life? What's the consequence of our marriage being off limits to God? Look at verse 12. He says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this. So they're, they're to be removed from the community and their bloodline God says, we'll not continue. So I, do we approach marriage with that kind of gravity? If you're, a, if you're a father here right now, think about how you instruct your children on the gravity of marriage. Think about this. Now remember, God's rebuking his people. He's correct because he loves them. So again, this can feel harsh. It can feel hard and heavy. But he's calling them to, bring, to come to repentance for their good. Now you might say, so what does this mean for us today? 2,000 years removed from the book of Malachi? What happens if we have married an unbeliever? Is there no chance for us? Do we, do we divorce our spouse? Is that not what the Corinthians perhaps thought? Maybe they're supposed to to divorce those who aren't helping them, who aren't advancing their purposes, so we just divorce them? No, not at all. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Divorce is not to be the option within the church. Rather, we live an obedient and loving life to God You live by faith in God, trusting that he will give you the grace and the strength necessary to love your spouse, to serve them, to show them the very beauty of Jesus, and you pray for their salvation. And and let me say this as a means of encouragement. If you have married an unbeliever, you know, or you have a child that's married an unbeliever, God will use the unbelieving spouse in incredible ways to deepen your faith and to draw you into a trust in God. He will use it, and it means for your good. But I'll also say this on the other side of that coin. You will experience greater relational difficulty by marrying an unbeliever, and you do not know if they will ever be saved. That's something we have to wrestle with. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. We don't know if God will save them. Now, if you're here and you're thinking about marriage and maybe you're single, maybe you're, maybe you're 15 and your marriage is still hopefully a distant prospect, very, very distant. <laughs> Talking to my kids about this today and I was like, look, you guys are going to be in here and marriage is not for a long time, but you're listening. <laughs> long time. But maybe you're 25 or 35 or, or 50 or 70 and, and, and you're looking at approaching marriage. Make sure the person you date loves Jesus. Make sure that they love Jesus and out of their love for Jesus, they will love you. Make sure they understand the roles of, of a husband and wife within the church. And the beauty of of the wife's submission to the church. Because it is an incredible, beautiful thing when we understand that. And understand the headship of the husband on how he lays down his life for the good of his bride. And grow in that relationship together. But make sure that they know Christ. Because there is no greater joy than doing life with a spouse who loves Christ and encourages you to walk in a relationship with Christ. So wherever you're at today, if you're single, make that commitment. You say, well, I'm not getting married again. Great. Lead someone else to making that commitment. Fathers, mothers, talk to your children. Help shape the way they think now as they approach marriage. They would understand that marriage is ultimately about Christ and the church. And if that's the picture that our marriages are to show this world, then it's of the most importance that we approach marriage in a way that would most honor God. Therefore, we should look for a spouse that also loves Christ. So by marrying foreigners who worship other gods, Israel has been faithless to God. In this next point, Malachi will show how Israel has now been faithless to their spouse. So this first point largely shows faithlessness to God. The second point largely shows faithlessness to the spouse. And this one is is as black and white really as the first point. Divorcing our spouse causes our worship to be rejected. Look at the second half of verse 13. It says, God no longer accepts their offering. And in verse 14, the, parent, the, the, the people arrogantly say, why not? You got you to read that. Like back in chapter one, when, when God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but then they say, how have you loved me? And so now, here, in verse 13, or verse 14, it says, why does he not Accept our sacrifices. As if, of course, they should be worthy. God answers, because you have been faithless to your wife, your companion, the one you made a covenant with. So here's what's happened. The men of Israel have divorced their wives so they could marry women of another nation who worshipped false gods. Now, likely, the men have acted this way. Because remember, the whole book of Malachi is built upon this idea that God has failed them. God has not kept his his end of the bargain. So we're not sure if God is faithful anymore. We're not sure that God can be trusted to care for us, to protect us, to, to prosper us as we obey him. Therefore... As we are a small, defeated people living around all these other nations, if we're going to succeed, if we're going to prosper, if we're going to secure our future, we're going to have to take things into our own hands. And so one of the primary ways that would happen at this time period is we would marry someone else's daughter, thus creating peace with that tribe or clan or another nation. So that's likely what's happening. That that makes understanding of the context of Malachi. So you see, divorce, under that understanding, has become a necessity for their happiness and their security. If you think about that, is that not why so many people divorce today? We divorce because we deserve better. We divorce because we're not happy. We divorce because we want security. We divorce because we think our marriage provides no hope. And our culture applauds those who seek divorce for their happiness. If you do what's best for what you believe your heart is leading you to, regardless how that affects others, our culture will come alongside you and say, that's exactly what you should do. Whatever it takes for you to be happy and to pursue love, you should do that. We'll come back to that in a moment. But look now at the beginning of verse 13. Now we're going to see the consequence of this action. We see the altar is covered with tears and weeping. So, So let me ask you, who's crying? Who's weeping? your first read, you might go, oh, so they're they're now bringing their offerings to God, and they're like, God, we love you so much. We want you to, we want to worship you. Oh, we're not experiencing his blessing, so now they're weeping. Does that make sense of the men? No, the, the men don't even know they have done anything wrong. So who's weeping? It makes more sense to understand this as the women whom they have abandoned. The women have been cast aside by their husbands. They now have nothing, no marriage, no security, no hope. They're vulnerable and unprotected. And so now when the men show up to the temple and they offer their sacrifices, God sees the weeping and the tears of the women of these men who they have abandoned. And God turns to these men and says, I hate your worship. You're going to live however you want to live, and then you show up to give me your sacrifice out of duty and tradition with a heart that does not love me? Your worship is worthless. How can these men declare their worship and allegiance to God when they abandon the wife that they have covenanted with? Do not miss this. To be faithless to your spouse is to be faithless to God. It's a clear connection that he's making here. Now, I want to give one application, and I want to give one explanation. There's so much that can be said here. There are many ways today that we can be faithless to our spouse that's not necessarily just divorce. There's many acts of faithlessness that lead to divorce or can lead to divorce. And probably one of the greatest threats that attacks marriages today is pornography. So I want to to illustrate this uh, by reading a quote from you. So I'm reading a book right now, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. I highly encourage you, if you want to wrestle with technology and just think through the goodness of the phones and technology that we have, but also the dangers that they bring, this is a great book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Highly, highly recommend it. Here's a, here's a quote: "Ashley Madison is a Canadian web-based subscription service targeting married women and w- married men and women seeking to initiate anonymous connections with other aspiring adulterers." The site slogan could not be more simple: "Life is short, have an affair." The site did with sex and relationships what digital technology tries to do with all of life. It made them consumable commodities. It turned adultery into a commodity that for a fee, users could acquire by discreetly submitting their email addresses to a database and becoming members who could message other members to coordinate secret adulterous rendezvous. Over the years, tens of millions of people secretly registered their names, credit cards, email addresses, and home addresses, and even wrote out their sexual fantasies. Is that not horrifying? When I read that, I just—I had no idea that a website, that there was a company that would be so bent on the destruction of marriages that it would actually coordinate affairs for people. Listen, our cell phones have placed pornography at our fingertips. And because our phones are personal, we think our lusts are kept in secret and are safe. But hear this. Our God is everywhere. He knows all things and he sees all things. There is no secrecy from God. Pornography is an absolute abomination to God. Pornography disrespects, dishonors, and devalues your spouse. And if you think that you can look at porn all week and show up on Sunday and raise your hands and worship God, then know that God hates your worship. Like, you need to know that. We need to embrace that truth and stand against pornography and anything that would come into our lives that would work at the devaluing dishonoring of our spouses now look I, I I can say that I feel like as, as hard as needed because I think God's word is hard there but I also would say this pornography is addicting and I know that for many people I'll say men especially you feel like it gets its, its claws into you it pulls you into a hole and you have no idea how to get out of it. And I know there are many men within the church here and, and the church that wrestle with pornography. And I, I want you to there is hope. I'll give you two things to think about regarding that. This can be applied to men and women. But number one, if we're going to overcome the temporal, finite, ultimately unsatisfying pleasures of pornography, it will only be as they're replaced with a far greater, infinite, all-satisfying pleasure in God. You have to know that. There's no other path out of pornography than replacing that finite, ultimately unsatisfying pleasure with the truly all-satisfying glory of God. And what that does, you come into God's word, where it reveals your depravity, and you see your sinfulness or an unworthiness to, to come before God, and then you behold his extravagant grace, The fact that God displays his love by the sending of his son that he would come and die in your place because you're addicted to pornography and addicted to finite pleasures. So he comes and dies in your place bearing your sin and the punishment that you should have received so that you could be freed from sin And experience the true pleasure and joy that not only satisfies you in this life, but for all of eternity. That's the number one path out of pornography. Coming in to God's word. And so I encourage you, if you are here and you are wrestling with pornography, dig deep into God's word. Join other people in the studying of God's word. But come face to face with the gospel on a regular place, on a regular basis. Be exposed to the immeasurable greatness of God's love. And as you do that, you'll be far more satisfied than anything that pornography can offer, and it will become uglier and uglier at every day. This is number one. Number two, confess it to someone. I know that can feel like the most humiliating and and insurmountable task But when we bring the darkness of pornography to the light, it loses its power very, very quickly. And I encourage you greatly to bring it to the attention of someone else, that they can walk with you and they can pray with you and they can hold you accountable as you fight this. Because it is a horrible sin that Satan has used to attack the church and destroy marriages left and right. And the digital technology that we have today, while it's amazing in so many ways, it puts Babylon in our pocket. And there, are very, and there are many, many dangers with it. So, that's the application for an explanation. I know some of you possibly have been divorced, or you know people have been divorced. You have children who are divorced, or parents who are divorced. And so you're saying, wait a minute, because I've been divorced, all my worship is, is rejected by God now? No, that's not what we're saying. Divorce is not some unpardonable sin. There are times that divorce, that scripture will say divorce is permissible. But even if you're here and you realize the divorce that I obtained or your children or parents or whatever it is was not permissible by scripture. It was more for for whatever other reason it is. There's grace in Christ. And we come to him just as we have Committed so many other sins. And we come to God and we ask forgiveness. But I encourage you, if you have never done that, maybe you felt like your divorce, even if it wasn't permissible, you were forced into that position. or You felt like you had to move. It felt like it was the only path forward. I encourage you still come before God and confess that to him. Experience his grace, his forgiveness, his comfort, God knows exactly what it's like to have a spouse who's unfaithful. He knows exactly what that's like. So experience his grace and his comfort and know that when you come to him, his grace brings healing and it will transform and build you into the image of Christ. Your worship by coming to him, repenting of your sin, is not rejected by God. But let me say this. We are never to approach marriage as if divorce is an option. Let me read Matthew 19. This is what Jesus says. He says, Have you not read... So he's being questioned about divorce by the Pharisees. So he he says in chapter 19, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's how we approach marriage, like that. We're joined into one, inseparable. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So he says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives But from the beginning, it was not so. So, why does divorce exist? Because of sin. I think we can all just agree on that. Divorce exists because of sin. And while the world will applaud divorce, God does not. Remember, our marriages, it's not ultimately about you, it's ultimately about your wife. Or the wife and the husband coming together, being joined into one, displaying the union between Christ and the church to this world. That there is a Savior who loves us so much that He now saved us and joined us to Him, that we would have an intimacy with God that the union between the husband and wife only points to. It pales in comparison to the far greater, superior union of Christ in the church. So when we divorce, we distort the picture of Jesus' love for the church, and we're saying that God's love and commitment to the church is no different than the way the world approaches marriage. So again, we can't go into all the permissible reasons of divorce, so there's much more we can say, but we can't cover everything today. So what do we do, though? What's the point of this passage? What is God desiring the outcome of this to be? How are you and I to respond to this passage? Well, we see it in verses 15 and 16. God tells his people twice, guard yourselves. And what he means? We're to guard our marriages like like a military, sol- like a soldier on a watchtower, and he's looking out at the horizon, and he's saying, "Is there enemy? Is there any enemies coming? And if there are, he's going to alert the people right away." So we in our marriages are to guard ourselves in our marriages, looking out. Is there anything on the horizon of our marriage, of my life, of my spouse's life, that's going to jeopardize the union that we have? Does that make sense? We guard ourselves, we guard ourself, we guard our marriage. So let me give you four ways we guard our marriage. Number one, remember your salvation. Which is where we start. The reason Israel became faithless with one another was because Israel had become faithless to God. So the best way we guard our marriage is by trusting in God each and every day. We need to be reminded we've been saved by God, justified by God, adopted into God's family, that His Spirit now dwells within us, sanctifying us, that we would now obey Him and live for Him. So ultimately the power needed to do all the commands of Scripture come from the indwelling Spirit who lives with us. And I have said this before, I'll say it again, what your spouse needs, what your family needs more than anything else is for you to spend time in God's Word each and every day growing in your relationship with God. If you want to to make strides in your marriage today, you're saying, give me an actionable item. Read your Word. Read the Bible, come into God's Word each day, being conformed by His Scripture, by the way the Spirit uses His Word to mold you, that you would live like Jesus, come into His Word every day, that you would behold the glory of God and the love that God has for you in Jesus, so that you would then love your spouse as God has loved you. That's the first and foremost thing I would say. The most important thing you can do To love your spouse, to love your family, is to spend time growing in your love for God every day. We do that through his word. We do that through prayer. We do that by the gathering with the church, by being a part of what we call table groups, where we have other people, smaller groups of people who know us, who we can be accountable with and encourage us. And number two, with that, I would say because you are saved, marry someone who is passionate about Jesus. So remember your salvation, so grow daily. And when you approach marriage, marriage someone who loves Jesus also. So number two, second way that we guard our marriage, remember your marriage needs to be guarded. Like I think sometimes we can pass over that. God is literally telling us, guard yourselves, guard your marriages, and then we can like close the book and walk on from there and go, all right, so what am I gonna do now? As if we read but we don't apply, which is a danger that we often face, But one of the things that we need to do is guard our marriages. Why? Because God says we need to guard our marriages. And we know that Satan loves to attack our marriages. In fact, since the beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden, we've seen marriage been under attack. He attacks our roles as husbands and wives. He wants us to pursue our lusts and our desires. He wants you to be busy at work so you'll neglect your spouse. He wants you to waste time on TV and social media so you neglect the communication of your spouse. And so so he's saying, be alert. What is hindering your union, your intimacy, your relationship with your wife? And that could be something that just affects you or something that you and your wife does or your spouse does or... It could be something that you're seeing that your wife is being led into. And so how do you then shepherd and love her at that moment to make her aware of the dangers that, sh- that are being faced? But one of the ways we stay alert is by regularly talking with our spouses, practicing repentance, spending time together, praying together, loving each other. Number three, remember the purpose of your marriage. We've said this multiple times today today. Our marriages ultimately point to the marriage of Christ in the church. It's ultimately what they're there to. They're to show the world the love of God. Uh, they're to be godly outcomes because of our marriage. I think we can say it like that, right? God is to be honored in our marriage. He will do that as we display the love union between Christ and the church. And then notice what verse 15 says. They produce godly offspring. Now, This doesn't mean that every marriage will have children, nor does it mean every child of a Christian family will be saved. But it is speaking of a principle if a husband and a wife love Christ and with their entire lives desire to honor God and they raise their children up in a way that they would see God and know God and experience the intimacy of God, that their children will also then know God, and love God. There are to be godly outcomes to our life. Number four, remember the covenant you made with your spouse. Look at verse 14. God says that your wife is your companion and your wife by, coven- and your, and your wife by covenant. And in verse 15, we read that God has made a husband and wife one. Listen, there is... There's no greater relationship you will have than with your spouse. God created men and women so that when they come together in marriage, they're united in soul and body. Marriage is about a husband and wife being bound together in the eyes of God. They share their life together, their griefs, their joys, their successes, their failures, their good times, their hard times. We covenant with our spouse and we persevere in our marriage because God has covenanted with us and he perseveres with us and when we are faithless God is faithful and he gives you the grace so that you can be faithful in your marriage so remember the union that you made with your spouse there was a covenant at that moment God bounds you together and now look at verse 14 who was there when you got married who was the witness this will be our interactive time. I know sometimes we do this earlier, but we'll do this now. It's a one-word answer. There's three letters in it. Who was the witness? See, man, I knew. I knew we were there. We weren't sleeping. We're tracking. Now think about it. God is your witness. Like that's meant to be an encouragement. Yeah, yeah. You you probably had a best man and best woman brides, what maid of honor. I'm like, man, that really didn't sound right. But I mean, she is like the best woman who's there. I mean, we, whatever. Look, the guys, we show up. <laughs> you have other witnesses that are there. But who's the true witness who's on his throne, sovereignly ruling over all of history at that moment, in ultimate control of that marriage? God is. He's the witness of your marriage. And he will give you the grace and the strength to love your spouse so it will reflect the greater marriage of Christ in church. Do you know that? Even if you're married an unbeliever, no. God was the witness that day. And he will give you the grace necessary, needed, so you can live and fulfill the role God has given you that you would love your spouse in the most God-honoring way possible. Never Ever forget God was present the day you were married. And he is present in power and grace and strength every single day in your marriage. Do you know that? Every day he is present with you in your marriage. So we begin this morning, we point out that Israel has a disconnected faith. They're living as if part of their lives are not impacted by their relationship with God and when we live that way, we say we're not only faithless to God, but we'll be faithless in all of our other relationships. We've been saved by God to live by faith, and so let us be a people that trust in God with every single relationship that we have. And let us love our spouses, let us guard our marriages as an act of worship to God and love for our spouse. Let me pray this morning.